Talk features thought leadership interviews with bank and credit union executives. If you are the CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. Learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. Today, we have a fascinating guest, uh, Joe Fazio, runs a Commerce State Bank in uh, southeastern Wisconsin. Prior to the podcast, Joe and I had a great conversation about his background. Joe is not a, historically had not been a banker by trade, didn't grow up one. And I think you'll find as we talk through this this podcast, some of Joe's perspectives, I think, are really interesting compared to you know, what we traditionally hear out of a bank CEO. We're talking about uh, commercial banking and the difference between retail banking today. Just uh, discussing perspectives and trying to get a better understanding of, of the difference in the two as you as a bank CEO or somebody that works in a, in a retail operation may have interest in going into the commercial space. I think this is a, a great podcast on just, you know, talking about the differences between the two. So let's get started. All right, today on Bank Talk, I have with me uh, Joe Fazio. Joe, you're the uh, CEO of Commerce State Bank here in uh, southeastern Wisconsin, and you had an organization called the, or the Wisconsin chapter of the Private Directors Association. So uh, first, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Private Directors Association started in about 2014 with a, with a, in Chicago with a few people that said, you know... Private companies really need boards of directors as much as public companies because of that outside advice, the different experiences and, and so forth that pre- people can bring to the table and help you know make those businesses be more successful, if you will, in terms of their experiences and knowledges that they've had in other industries. So it started out with you know 20 people. Today, there's over 2,200 members nationwide. There's 20 chapters. And I started the Wisconsin chapter. And the purpose of it is, one, to help people be better directors, right? So there's some educational components about, you know, your role as a director, your responsibilities and those kinds of things. Secondly, and and what drew me to it the most is the opportunity to help connect companies that are forming boards of directors or that need new uh, directors for the board. They're refreshing the board or whatever with people that want to be on boards of directors, right? You know, I have a board of directors for our bank and I'm seeking a a new director. How do I go about doing that? Well, most people think about, well, let's sit around the board table and talk about the people we know, rather than let's go to a resource which has thousands of people in the database and go, hey, we're looking for somebody with this kind of skill set. Here's how often we meet. Here's how we do it and so forth please raise your hand. And I did that for my bank as part of it. By example, I had 75 resumes in two days from across the country that I could sift through quickly and go, wow, I've got a lot of people that are available outside of Joe Fazio's network, if you will. And particularly today, when you look at it and say, I want to diversify my board, you really need to find a new way to get into a new network of people. And when I looked at starting the Wisconsin chapter, to me, that was one of the key things was I'm going to expand my network well beyond the business network, the acquaintances and people I've met in my life. And that will be beneficial for me. It'll be beneficial for the bank because we're talking about private companies here. 
that could all be potential clients for the bank. And it'd be good for me personally, because I'd like to be on other boards of directors. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept, particularly since we do have a lot of conversations with some of our clients related to, you know, who's the next board member. And I do often think it is, you know, uh, the list of the closest friends sometimes that I get the job. And I don't know if that's the most rounded board, you know, as you're just talking about bank. Yeah, I can tell you it's not. And you find out once you, I liken it to fishing, you know, keep going to, to catch walleye at the same lake in the same place, you're going to catch walleye. So then you come back and say, gee, I need somebody with this different set of experiences or from a different geography or whatever. You go, well, why don't you go fish where there's perch in the lake? You know, <laughs> if you never do that, you, you never find somebody else. And in terms of a need or an interest in it, we started the Wisconsin chapter um, in June of last year. So almost 10 months, and we have 150 members already. So it's it, it's really been very valuable. Outside of that, uh, what I really wanted to spend a bit of time around is is the difference between a commercial banker and a retail banker. And and specifically where this came to mind, you know, when I approached you, it was because we've got clients that, uh, you know, as you know, the country's gone through this PPP. And after talking to a bunch of our clients, I think of it this way. I think of it as a bubble of money that got dropped in everybody's lap. And when it did, and when I say everybody, I mean, you know, the banks around the United States, mm-hmm. when it did, it it happened in a way where it was a short-term project, it was immediate. And I think a lot of community banks took that as an opportunity because larger banks could not process the PPP loans fast enough. And so they needed a place to get their hands on the money before the money ran out. Now, I don't think that's new information to you. Um, I think what some of our clients saw it as an opportunity to boost their assets, to potentially grab a new customer on the commercial side and, you know, really uh, potentially open up both accounts and, and this loan, which eventually would go away. So that's a paraphrase. Can you give me Give me a feel for just kind of where the PPP program is today. And, you know, did I did I paraphrase that right? I'm certainly not the expert in this area. I think that's a good characterization. I would say a couple of things about it. First, it was incredibly quick and responsive by the federal government to, to say, what do we do, right? And that was a very good program because the, the focus of it was to keep people working in the face of this unknown pandemic thing. And what's the effect going to be, right? So... Banks were then put in the position of saying, okay, we need to get this money out to businesses, right? And those banks that saw this as an opportunity, which many did, looked at it and said, okay, well, um, let's start getting this. And none of us could predict the volume, right? And what we discovered, along with many banks, is the volume was heavier and faster than we anticipated. So we quickly, when we when we realized that, we just said, how are we going to process these things? so that it's focused on getting the customer their application in and getting them approved and so forth as quick as we possibly can. You know, we've got all kinds of systems and trying to image things and not use you know paper rather than computers and so forth. And we kind of put all of that aside and we just put together, a, you know, like a triage system of let's get the stuff through this way and we'll figure out how to get it all into our systems and make it more efficient later, but first focus on the client. And Many banks did that and some didn't. Some also tried to say, we're going to put together an online portal so that the client just has to sign on, but that online portal couldn't handle the volume, if you will, and things like that happen. And then I would say that 
smaller businesses oftentimes can get lost, you know, in the shuffle, if you will, as as they say, because we've got so many big clients that need multi million dollar deals or they're you know they're big important clients to the bank, and if you're running a a two million dollar company and your and your bank is a multi trillion dollar bank, how big a fish are you in their pond? And banks saw this as you know an obligation for us to provide and help facilitate this for the government. And it's a way to service our clients. So we went after it very hard. We obtained uh, clients through this process, new clients, because people would come to us and say, I can't get through my bank. When could you, you know, they can't even tell me when I can get in the process and I'm worried about the money running out. And we would say next week, Tuesday is when we can bring you in, right? Understand we will always put one of our current clients ahead of you, but from what we can tell about our processing structure and everything, your application would go in, we'll be able to process it on Tuesday, you'll be fine kind of a thing, right? And they like that. I even had uh, a few other bankers contact me who worked in, say, wealth management or, or a division of a bank and said, can you help this client? I just want to help our client get through this. And, and we would do that as well. When we did it, though, we always told that prospect, listen, um, if we're good enough to be your PPP bank, we are good enough to be your bank. So you need to open accounts with us and we'd like to build, begin developing a long-term relationship with you. And we probably picked up 20 to 30 new relationships as a result of that. You're right though, it is a bubble. It's short and it's going to go away. 2020, the PPP loans that that were processed, 98% of ours have gone through the forgiveness process. We've earned the fee. We've gotten it forgiven for the client. 2021 was another round. Those loans are, are, you know, for the most part, processed, all set, and so forth. And that forgiveness will begin later this year. Once that loan is forgiven, the federal government pays it off and pays a fee to the bank. And that's the end of it, really. But it is very short term. Do you think that most, I, I, I believe that I understood that most businesses that came through the PPP were, were required to at least open an account and, you know, with some potential for a relationship. I, I, I think that's where most bankers took it. Does that is that kind of your perspective on it as well? Yeah, as I talk to other bankers, and I do that a lot, um, you know, consistently among the, let's call it the community bank, let's just call it the smaller bank, they all found, and what do I mean by smaller, let's say less than $10 billion in assets, they all found that they gained client relationships as a result of this, because People just, they, they didn't want to miss the opportunity. And, you know, it, it's hard to remember back a, a year ago, you know, there was this money was set aside and, and, and it was going, it was being utilized quickly. And there was this fear that it's going to run out. I think they extended it again one time. And uh, as I recall, but there was a sense of urgency among people. And that's where they started looking at it going, I got to go find somebody that can help me get this loan processed. And if I need to open accounts with them, that's okay because they're being responsive to me. I think that a lot of traditionally retail banks, you know, where maybe they're ninety percent retail with a with a commercial portfolio as well, you know, use this as an opportunity to maybe move deeper into the commercial banking space. So what I wanted to, to kind of talk about today is I, I want to just kind of spend a few minutes around the difference between a commercial and a retail bank and a from that perspective. So I think this, you know, this opened the door to be a little more commercial for some banks. G give me, in your opinion, what is the difference between a retail and a commercial? We'll be right back. 
You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, well, great question. And and I would say that think about it as um, maybe a consumer or a business. So some banks are focused on, I want to provide your checking account. I want to do your mortgage. I want to loan you money for a car. I want to loan you money for a boat or an RV or, or whatever, right? That's retail. That's the stuff that gets referred to as retail. Commercial is the stuff that I want to lend money to a business. I want to lend money on a multi-unit building or uh, an apartment building versus a single family home, right? Because apartment buildings are generally owned by somebody that's an investor that collects rent and revenue from that. They're not doing it as their home as they're, where they're going to live. There are needs that businesses have that can be somewhat different than what an individual has. An individual generally says, I have a job. I make $75,000 a year. I want to buy a mortgage. There are some real easy, quick, simple ways to figure out, oh, you know, I'm just going to make a number up. I can afford $2,000 a month for my mortgage. Therefore, how much house can I buy, right? And that's all very prescribed and defined and so forth. And what, what a bank is looking at, a retail bank will say, can this person afford this mortgage payment per month? Yes, we got some, some algorithms we can run and it can show that. Whether that's a home mortgage or an automobile loan or, or something, you know, that's a consumption kind of thing, Versus a business where they go, okay, well, you know what? This business generates $5 million a year in, in revenue, but its revenue comes in big chunks, right? So they build large machinery and they sell five machines a year and each one's a million dollars, but they only get that million dollar revenue after they deliver the machine. It takes three months to build one. And how do they pay their employees? How do they pay their rent? How do they do all these other things to stay in business until they can collect that million dollars? And at the end of the year, and they make five machines, they make a $100,000 machine, the business made $500,000. Well, there's a thing called a line of credit, if you will, right? And the way that gets looked at is the commercial bank has a commercial team that is able to analyze and look at what's the industry you're in. You know, what, what are your cost structures? How concentrated is your client base? You know, do you have just one customer you're building machines for? Oh my gosh, what if they come to you one day and say, we don't want your machines anymore. Suddenly you're out of business. So there's all these other risks around commercial lending and you're lending on cash flow, if you will, the cash of the business that's coming in. And as I said, it comes in in weird chunks versus think about it. People come to work every day. You need your building, you know, whether you're renting or owning it, you need your building every day. You need your equipment every day. So you have all of these costs that go on day, 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 day versus three months from now, I'm going to get a million dollars. So banks that are commercial banks are willing to take those risks to determine which of these businesses are well run, have good cash flow, have longevity, have been in business for a long time, right? And have proven their ability to manage through this and so forth. 
And then this line of credit I talked about, maybe it's a $2 million line of credit. And sometimes it's at $2 million, but then we get paid for a couple of machines and we pay it off and it's down to zero. And then it goes up to 500,000 and then it goes down to zero. That's what you want to see as a commercial lender versus a retail bank where it's, did you make your mortgage payment? And do you have the ability to continue to make your mortgage payment? And there are some very specific algorithms you look at and say, how long has the person been employed? What is their income? What is their down payment? What is their cost for their mortgage every month? And boom, that's what we've got. Now, complicated one point further and say, if somebody stops making payments on their house, a house is something you can sell. It generally has value. People are living in it. They typically take care of it, right? But there are a lot of people that want to own a house or, you know, or a car, right? If they stop making their car payments and the bank has to sell the car, easy to do. If in this scenario I painted about the commercial client that builds five machines a year and those machines have raw stainless steel, some aluminum, you know, their screws, bolts, nuts, there are some rubber components to keep this together. And you go, the business went out of business and they have a million dollars of inventory that I've lent on. Who wants some pieces of stainless steel and some rubber O-rings? And so, you know, who are you going to sell that to? You get pennies on the dollar for that versus a home is a pretty established value because you can see what homes are selling for. Automobiles, we can all go online and look at what our car is worth. So it's in the retail side, stuff is readily saleable. And the commercial side, there's way more risk because you've got raw materials and, and, and things like that. Who do you sell that to? So it's primarily the underwriting and the and the appetite for the commercial risk. I would imagine that the fee structure might be a little bit different as well in the commercial world, and and probably rightfully so because of the risk uh, associated with one individual business or one individual owner. I, I think when you and I talked earlier, right, you have an interesting policy on fees for your commercial customer, or, or explain you know just kind of how you think about that when you talk to a business owner. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I think it almost holds true for retail or commercial. You had asked a really good question there. Maybe you didn't realize it, Charlie, but you know, where you said, hey, so I spent, I suppose the fee structure is different, but the structure is different. So if you come to my bank and, and you're a commercial client, you know, it's the first time you're borrowing money and what you've borrowed money on before was your home. And you go, I'd like a 15 year fixed rate loan for my inventory. There's no way you're getting that. Right. And then you go, really? Why? I mean, you lend me money for 15 or 30 years of my house at a fixed rate. Well, a couple of things. One, the federal government provides funding for mortgages, which reduces the cost of mortgages for people, right? Because they're borrowing at, you know, they're using government borrowing rates to then allow mortgages to be sold. And my bank doesn't keep that loan, your mortgage on my books, so to speak. All right. I'm going to facilitate that for you. I'm going to get that mortgage for you. And I'm likely to sell it to somebody else because I don't want a loan at, pick a number, 3% for 30 years on my books. And people say, well, why is that? Well, I got to balance money coming into the bank with deposits with money going out of the bank and loans. And I don't have anybody that comes into my bank and says, could I have a 30-year CD? And I go, oh, great, 30-year CD. I just sold a 30-year mortgage. I can balance one off the other and I make money on the spread. In the commercial world, again, as we draw a difference between retail and commercial, in the commercial world, I'm keeping those mortgage, those, those loans in my portfolio at the bank. So you're likely to get a three or five-year lock on that, okay? I can, or, or a floating rate, because I'm trying to manage 
you know, my risk. And how do I do that? By keeping the loan rate shorter. So usually there is a, a commercial loan fee. I want to borrow money. There might be a half to a 1% fee for getting the loan. And then secondly, expect that loan to be either floating rate or fixed for no more typically than five years. There's some differences among that, but generally speaking, commercial loans are three to five years. And then what happens is you reassess it at that three to five year point. So you might get a loan for your building with a 30-year amortization, but the rate's only locked for three to five years. So now let's talk about fees a little bit. And to your point of, well, how do I look at fees? And I say, man, I tell you what, banks provide a tremendous service to people. You know, I mean, if you asked your friend um, to say, hey, hey, you know, say, I'm your friend, Charlie, let's, let's go with that. And you go, Joe, would you, would you manage my money for me? Well, yeah, sure, Charlie, I can help you a little bit. Well, here's what I'm going to need you to do, Joe. I'm going to need you to keep banks do all that stuff essentially for free. When somebody says to me, that'll be the day I pay $2 to get my money out of an ATM, you know, in Florida or somewhere distant, it's my money. I go, you know, really? So you got up this morning and before you went to work, you put money in every ATM across the world just in case you might go somewhere and need some of your money. It's not your money that's in that ATM. It's somebody's, the bank's, some bank's money, right? And we're providing access to you, right? That you can get access to your money anywhere, anytime, whether it's on your phone, your computer, in person, in cash, at an ATM, you know, through the electronic means of Venmos and PayPals and all that stuff. And it's secure and it's insured. I'm sorry, you got me on a topic that I love talking about, but have I answered that question? (laughs) You did, and, and you're going to be really disappointed when you find out that I only need you to keep $80 in my account. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the larger sort of mid-regional banks mm-hmm. seem to have, you know, even with, even those with a retail focus, seem to garner a fair amount of commercial business. How does a, a community bank's approach to that commercial customer differ, in your opinion, from maybe a mid-regional or somebody that's that's quite a bit larger with a retail focus? Yeah, I think think that on that, the people you'll generally deal with in a community bank, or or let's call it a locally owned bank, if you will, right? Those decisions are being made by people that are involved in operating and working the bank. So when we started our bank, um, we raised money through investors, but I'm one of the investors in the bank, right? So I feel like I'm lending my money when I lend it out. And so do the other guys that I started the bank with that that are heavily invested. The bigger the bank gets, the the more distant you are from the decision makers, the management of the organization. So if somebody comes in and, and, and wants to talk about moving you know, their business relationship to us, I'll often be in that conversation or one of the other founders will be. And we love doing that. And we understand, we get it because we go, wow, these are tough decisions because we started a company and we've been through it versus you know, we're a region here and we take all your information and we ship it off to a central underwriting facility in, you know, Dallas or New York or Chicago or wherever, right? And that decision is made out there. We don't have that decision authority locally. And it's that local decisioning that is really helpful for a business owner because local people understand what's going on. Local people, you know, local by local, I mean, call it Southeast Wisconsin, right? We understand property values. We understand the economy. We understand what's going on in our region versus, hey, the central underwriting group in Cleveland says, 
um, you know what? We don't want to rent, uh, uh, lend money to uh, job shops anymore because they don't have a consistent customer base and everything they do is a one-off or whatever. We're just not doing that, right? Or let's no longer lend to them. Let's go to those clients when their loans can do and tell them we're not going to do it anymore versus local businesses that go, we, we understand what's going on and we understand the multi-generation nature of a business and where the assets are and the longevity of it and so forth. So you just get better credit decisions locally. Now, how does a regional bank do well? The bigger the business is, the bigger the loan needs to be. So my bank right now is $750 million in assets. Our legal lending limit's about $15 million. If you need a $30 million loan, well, I can't do the whole thing, but I could partner with another bank and participate that loan with another bank or two. The, the client doesn't have to deal with that. They just make payments to us. But that's the way local banks or, or community banks participate. You know, we're competitors sometimes, but we're participants and cooperators at times. So if you have a need for a larger loan, that's where, you know, the bigger banks start to become important is I want, I, you know, I need 50 million, I need a hundred million dollar loan and so forth. Where they fall down is, in my opinion, is that that local flavor for the client that doesn't need a 50 or $100 million loan. They need 5 million, 10 million, 15 million, 20 million, whatever it is. We, t- we spent a little bit of time talking about small businesses, but, you know, maybe startups, potentially, you know, those types of things. And as you get to real small ones, what are some of the more interesting discussions you've had? Tell me an interesting story or, or tell me, you know, some of the things you bump into there that might be prohibitive, uh, where, where maybe the uh, small business owner isn't thinking about it. Startups are are always sort of in that category. And I think to a few years ago when somebody came in and said, gee, I want to start, you know, I'm going to start this wholesale drug distribution business, right? And it's like, okay, have you ever been in that drug distribution business before? No, but I know these guys that started this company and they're sort of franchising it to me. It's like, so you know nothing about drug distribution, but you think you got some contacts and you know somebody, I mean, you got to think through with a really solid business plan. And where's the revenue coming from? Are you going to work in this business? Yes, I am. Okay, so you have no outside income. So, you know, those are the things that people, I think, come in sometimes and say, I have this great business idea and this opportunity. And if you'll just lend me half a million dollars, I'm often on my merry way. I look at that and, and it's all ties back to retail versus commercial. I have to, I have to prove that you can pay repay the money back to the bank. Now, that's important, A, for the bank to be able to say, we want to take prudent risk because we're lending money that we want to get repaid. Banking is very simple. I'm going to give you a big pot of money and you're going to give it back to me in small increments every month with a little bit added for interest, right? It's really simple. So I need to be able to do that. And now that's important to the bank. It's important to those that regulate the bank. So the FDIC, the OCC, state regulatory bodies and so forth, when they come through and they examine banks and they They'll examine a bank every 18 months. Part of what they're doing is saying, what does your loan portfolio look like? And let me tell you, they go through everything. They see everything we see, if you will, uh, on a loan. So that loan file has gone through and they go, let's look at this. You loan $500,000 to somebody that's doing a startup company that had no other outside income, no clients yet. How did you expect to get repaid with this? This loan, there's no cash flow here. We talked about that before. What's the revenue coming in? What's the expense and so forth? Not only is it good business to make sure that people can you know, repay their loans 
it's also required from a regulatory standpoint. And I, I Charlie, I, I testified before uh, the state of Wisconsin Financial Institutions Committee or whatever one time, and we were going through this. And and you know, there's 30 people in the room or more, and there's regulators in the room, there's elected officials in the room, and so forth. And I was trying to describe this very concept. And I said, well, I'd lean over and I'd look over to the person that was from the state Wisconsin Department of Financial Institution. I'd say, well, well, Bill over there doesn't want me to lend money to people that prove they can't pay it back. Correct. Because when you come and examine me, you're going to look for that. Yep, that's right. Yep. And I'd say my bank has lots of money to lend. And and then the elected officials would say, well, you know, why can't my cousin Billy get a loan or my, you know, my cousin Sue or my nephew or whatever? And I looked around the room and I said, you know, we still have plenty of money to lend. We have to be prudent about it. We have to have people that prove they can pay it back. But I said, I asked a question. I said, um, how many people in here have relatives? And, you know, they sheepishly, well, yeah, you know, raise their hands or have relatives. I said, how many of your relatives would you lend money to? You know, <laughs> I got some <laughs> laughs in the room and the hands went down and that kind of stuff. And I said, well, that's what you got to understand. Those are the people coming into banks every day asking to borrow money. We have to be able to prove that they can repay it. Because if, if they can't, we're not doing them any favors, right? Sooner or later, then they either file bankruptcy or something. But we have to be able to prove that there are sources of income, that there's a logical business there. And then and then at the end of the day, if somebody says, I've got $100,000 that I'm going to put into my business and I want to borrow a million dollars. Well, gee, who has more money at risk here? The bank? or the investor, right? The owner, I would argue the bank. So it sounds to me like probably the biggest challenge you get with somebody who's new to the commercial banking from a business perspective is probably one who doesn't understand the underwriting criteria, right? They don't, they right. don't understand conceptually what we've been talking about here, which is, which is that we're no, we're no longer talking about your mortgage because in your mortgage, I can sell your house if, if things go wrong, mm -hmm. right? Right now right. we're talking about, you know, a stream of income at the same time we're talking about, you know, clearly I think most uh, folks that are thinking about hanging out their own shingle are pretty optimistic. They don't have anybody that says to them, let's look at the downside. Let's look at, you know, six months without income. Let's look at risk scenarios that you aren't anticipating because you're thinking, you know, you heard of some guy who made, you know, millions of dollars. Uh, starting an internet company, whatever, right? right. I mean, that seems to be the, right? Right. that's that's the goal, right? That's the American dream. It sounds to me like like the education of that person that's trying to start one up is is probably at least as critical as anything else. Is it fair to say that the majority of the folks that come in in that scenario probably don't have a business degree or haven't had financial education related to this sort of thing? Financial education or experience, I, I would agree with that, and that's a topic for a whole nother, a whole nother day. But um, you know, you can have a business degree. In fact, I you can have an accounting degree. If people haven't been exposed to that, they don't realize. I, I think it sort of goes back to this simple fact that banks are lenders, not investors. So back to when we started our bank, we went out and and sought investors. And people say, well, why didn't you guys just start the bank? And I go, well, we raised $12 million of capital to start the bank. We had about 150 investors. We sold shares of stock in a company that we were forming, right? And I say, well, here's the reason. So we raised $12 million. I was only about $11 million short of being able to fund the whole thing, okay? So, 
So that's why I needed investors. And I think sometimes people come and say, got this great business idea, you know, opened a candy store, you know, an exercise shop or whatever. And now I need some more money. And I did, well, okay, I can lend you money, but if you've put a hundred thousand dollars in to buy your equipment and you need a million dollars more of equipment and the bank is going to lend you that million dollars, who has more invested in it? The bank does, right? But we're not investors. We lent you the money. Our return is the interest rate we're getting, right? Versus the owner's return is how much profit can I generate out of this business? And when you make, you know, a hundred percent return and you go, well, if you loan me a million dollars, I can make a million dollars. You're still going to pay the bank, you know, five and a half percent or something like that. You're not going to go, you guys have been great to me. Thanks for lending. I'm going to share my profits. Here's $500,000 a year. That's not the way it works. And because we're lenders, we have to be very careful about who we lend to. We got to be right 99% of the time or more. And then you also have to factor in, it's great. We did this analysis on our ability to lend you money today. But remember, this is an ongoing relationship and partners fracture and people get divorced and businesses, you know, buildings burn and and uh, regulations change and pandemics happen. And you got to be able to manage through all of those things as a business owner. So all the way back to your first question or your original question, which is, do you have to educate people on that? The, the less people have been in business, the more they need to understand that because sometimes it's the bank won't just just won't give me money. And it's a misconception that banks are there to give people money to run business. I love your dream. I just may not be able to lend money for your dream. You know, I think we talked a little bit about, you know, I, I love your business idea. Um, I just I just can't lend on a dream and only a dream. And I don't want your dream to go away. And that's where oftentimes I think for us, because we've started a business and we've raised capital and I like to stay involved in and connected to, you know, investors, angel investors, investment bankers, private equity, all those kinds of acronyms and stuff that I like to guide people to say, I can't lend you money. I think you need investors. Maybe I can introduce some people that have an interest in your business and can help fund it. It's very different. And, and people got to get comfortable with the idea that, you know, I'm going to give up some ownership in my business, but that's exactly what we did. I, you know, again, I was only $11 million or so short of starting a bank. If I hadn't gone out or we hadn't gone out and gotten investors, we wouldn't have what we do today. And it's better to own a part of something than, you know, own nothing of uh, nothing of nothing or nothing of something. Yeah, 100% of nothing, right? <laughs> Isn't that the, that's the old saying, I think. Yeah. <laughs> better to own a part of something than 100% of nothing. Yes. And I, and I think that's a great perspective. Yeah. And that's really, you know, at the end of the day, as a, as a good banker, you want to educate people and you want to educate. I don't even want I, I use a different word than educate. You want to share your knowledge and experience so that people understand and learn from it and go, okay, so this is what I need to do. Right. I mean, one of my, for simple things that I like to say, people think, well, once my business is really successful, I'll need less money. No, you probably need more money because you'll need more inventory in a bigger building and you're going to have more clients and you have more accounts receivable. So, Again, that's sharing the knowledge of here's how you prepare for these things versus, yeah, once I start the business, I'll be making money and I won't need to borrow it anymore. Mm, probably different. Yeah, and I think, you know, kind of to, to bring it full circle, you 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 know, we we had started this conversation around the, the directors association. And mm -hmm. then you and I, even prior to this call, had kind of talked about our business backgrounds. And I think the the fact that you have a group of people surrounding you that are business people. I think is a really interesting dynamic because, you know, we, we had talked about, you know, is it, is it 
best to, to manage your bank with folks that came up through the teller line and all the way through all the banking pieces, or in some cases, do you go out and get outside talent that doesn't have banking experience, but specifically for the fact that they've got other experiences that, you know, are related to running a, you know, running a different organization, running something else. And, and sometimes that, yeah, sometimes that, that uh, concept of being, I think it's heterogeneous, I would probably call it. I'm no, I'm no scientist, but right, <laughs> homogeneous versus hetero. But I, I think that concept of sort of a, a mixed set of experiences, uh, you know, often does better for trying to decide, you know, who you're going to lend to and, you know, what makes the most sense. Because uh, the answer is not always yes, but at least right. you have the ability to say uh, no. But if you can get this, this and this covered, we can help you. And if I can't help you here, you know, potentially here's some other resources to go look at, you know, for uh, finding your funding. Well, you're exactly right as it relates to the board of directors. We have people inside the bank, the operational, how do we run it day to day? How do we analyze a loan? How do we put together the loan presentation? How do we you know, process deposits and loans? We have that operational expertise at our board. I have this conversation all the time with people through private directors association and others where I go, I don't need a banker on my board. I need a, I need a person that's been in manufacturing. I need a person that's been in accounting. I need a a lawyer that that will say, you know, okay, so where's the legal risk here? How do they have their contracts? Because if they can't get their contracts this way, then you're going to be exposed on your accounts receivable or your, you know, loan line of credit or whatever. I need I need somebody that's been in in real estate development that has seen how those kinds of things works and understands the pitfalls. That's the guidance that's really helpful to us running the bank. We don't need another banker. We got we got lots of bankers inside that can analyze stuff from a banking perspective. So, sure. Board makeup is a discussion for another time, but it is a fascinating subject around you know just how how boards are made up and specifically yes. bank boards. But yeah, well, okay. I mean, I think I've got everything. I'd, I certainly appreciate all your time. Uh, you've given us some great perspectives on you know not only not only probably educating the audience on on the underwriting criteria and how you think about underwriting these things, but but also, you know, I think you've got some really fascinating ideas on just how to educate your customers on what a banker does. Okay, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate you spending the time with us, Joe, and uh, thanks for your insight. And we may very well hook back up for another, a couple of other podcast topics like we were talking about earlier uh, prior to yeah. this discussion. I'd love to do this. I, I, I'd love to do it. I really enjoyed this. I appreciate it, Charlie. I look forward to future interactions. Excellent. Well, thanks again to Joe for spending quite a bit of time with us discussing the difference between a commercial banker and a retail banker and just underwriting criteria, how you think about it, uh, some of the challenges that that uh, go along with being a commercial banker that, you know, potentially the retail side may not understand or, or appreciate. Great conversation today. That's all for Bank Talk. Thanks for joining us and keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast. There are many podcasts out there, and you've selected ours, so thank you. Subscribe to our podcast on banktalkpodcast.com or check us out at remedyconsult.net. See you in the next episode.